The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. So I wanted to get David Gollum on for a market chat here. Dave, you and I spoke a long time ago before I started turning the Lee Lag Live conversations into podcasts. A lot of people love you. A lot of people don't. Same with me, yeah. by the way. Which is you wear with a badge of honor, my friend, is I think the way to think about it. But I want to focus the conversation for a bit on toxicity because we're in a very unusual market where there's a degree of toxic to- cognitive dissonance in the way the markets are acting. So Leo, just from your vantage point, what the hell's going on in markets today? Well, I think the big story that somehow is being ignored is I think that Powell doesn't care about inflation. I don't think he cares about money flow. I don't think he cares about any of that stuff. I think he cares about getting the market to heal. So I, I think he's I think he's trying to get the speculators to stop speculating. Volcker had the same problem. He sort of beat on him and then they came back and he beat on him again. And I think that's what Powell's facing. I think he's embarrassed by headlines of NVIDIA and headlines of Tesla and headlines of the super stocks running the entire market. Yeah, and I've used that, I use that line all throughout 2021. It's like I was seeing back then, I said the amount of uneducated speculation back then is astounding as sort of a warning sign that things might top out. And I think we're kind of back in that mode. Because I put this tweet out you know, a couple of weeks ago. It's like, I'm starting to see the Lambos again on FinTwit. I'm starting to see a lot of people getting very ballsy about you know their call options because right? they're making money with it. Well, the other thing that I think is something that's been bugging me for a while is there there is no smart money. It's all dumb money. So you've got, if you read analyses by supposedly very bright guys, you listen to their language. It's all technical analysis language. It's all about momentum and flow and stuff like that. There's just so few people out there saying, well, this is a good place to be because over the next 10 years, it's going to do really well. And you can run into it. You know, I think things like the uranium play fits into that. But for the most part, everyone's just trying to catch big waves. And I can't do that. So that absolutely appalls me. I, I think that if you buy, pay, overpay for any asset, you will underperform in the long run. I think that's a truism. So, so what you're saying is that you would agree that NVIDIA is fucked. Especially because I don't buy into the whole AI thing. To me, AI is probably going to be a detriment to society. I, you know, I, I look at these super stocks, as I mentioned in a private communication. And, you know, most of them are kind of garbage too. You know, I would not want to put these companies against Standard Oil and U.S. Steel and Ford Motors and General Motors and, you know, the railroads and stuff like that for wealth creation. It's just junk. If Facebook went away today, who cares? That's my best example. But if Tesla went away today, who cares? Tesla doesn't know how to make cars. 
They don't know how to, their, their market cap, you know, reflects a company that's selling half the cars in the world and, and their sales do not. Below that point, it's like, there is no smart money. Everyone is just, I've made that arbitration myself. I've met well, with a lot of advisors, well, well, uh, financial institutions. I mean, they are no different than, than retail. They just retail with a lot more money. And it's, they're forced to do it. I mean, there's guys who sit there and go, that's the game I got to play, right? This, uh, this is the hand I'm handed. So I was talking to a very smart guy who's a value guy. And he says, I'm not as bearish as I said to you last time we were together. And then he qualified. He said, you know, I think the whole thing's going to come crashing to our ankles in the fall. But, and I go, well, what kind of time scale is that? I mean, if you're not bearish, if you told me it's going to crash anytime in the next three years, I'm out. I'm out. I don't want to be there. And so the other problem is it goes way, way back. And this is something that I've been obsessing over. And that is that when defined benefit plans converted to defined contribution plans, they went from money being handled by not only smart guys, but guys who, if they failed, lost money for their company. And they handed it over to the masses, which means now there's no one to answer to. So there's, you know, you got Calper still, maybe kind of, who knows, you know, things like that. But Activist investors are rare when in the olden days, they were all activist investors. They sold you out if you did poorly. And uh, now you have millions upon millions of people who were completely stupid money because A, they don't know what they're doing and B, they're indexing. And the indexes, as we know, are non-linearly putting all the money into the super stocks. And, and I one time had a chat with John Bogle, believe it or not. And I asked him about this idea. I said, didn't democratization of the market also take away adult supervision? He said, yes. So there's the guy who invented the index fund. And, and a stat that I like to give in every podcast I do, from 1981 to the present, 40 years, market valuations, which are inherently inflation corrected. So you don't have to worry about, you know, money flows or anything. It's just, it's just the market divided by some metric that ought to track, whether it's GDP or private sales or whatever. And there's a, I keep track of about 25. They, that should mean regress more than any metric in the market, period. There's nothing more mean regressing than a market valuation. And that has compounded over 40 years at over 3% a year. Now, what happens in the next 40 years? It's not going to do that again. What happens if it reverses, which mean regression says it has to? What if the next 40 years is negative 3% a year valuation compounding? What's going to happen? And that is it. It'll be an entire loss generation of investors. As you were saying that, my mind went to democratization leads to concentration. Right? To your point about the passive and movement with the defined benefit side, right? It's, it, the default option ended up being Vanguard type, large cap, market cap weighted strategies, which to your point, grossly disproportionately benefits the top names and results in everybody having a lot more company specific risk than they realize. And the problem also is that the guys running the companies don't, they don't have to answer to anybody. Because, you know, what index fund is going to raise holy hell, right? And so I mentioned this idea of the Cantillon effect. Well, let me mention my obsession over super stocks. I read an article a couple of weeks ago about super stocks. And I went right by it because it's one of these articles that says, if you don't, if you own these 10 stocks, you're rich. And if you didn't, you're not, you know, so it's like, oh, yeah, now you tell me, right? And so I said, so the message they're saying is you got to own the 10 super stocks of the next decade. And I go, but no one knows who they are. So and the guys who do are just, it's just full by randomness. Someone's going to get it right, but it doesn't mean they knew what they were doing. And I blew by it because it's one of those stupid stories. And then I realized, that, no, the subplot is that out of the S&P 500, there are 490 companies who collectively are returning nothing. And then I realized that, you know, if you bought a gas station and 10 years later, you had made no money, 
There was no cash flow. There's no net gain at the end of the year. You're an idiot. You really blew it. Yet we're buying 490 of the biggest companies in the world and they are returning nothing. And then I started thinking about the fact that, you know, when I was young, I was buying assets when they were dirt cheap and they were building up value and they were growing in terms of valuation. The current youngsters, if they're averaging into the market, they're averaging in a completely losing situation. And if it takes eternity, like the Fed seems to want it to do, then they will buy instead of me who bought for 20 years and then really made money or my dad really did. They will buy expensive stuff for the first 20 years and build up sort of a nest egg, but without much gains. And then they'll lose money. And so I just, you do not want to be forced to buy expensive assets. There's no way to win that. You get a sense that those, there's still a lot of overvaluation. I mean, take out the magnificent seven, right? I, you can find stocks that are cheap. I think I started buying a little bit of energy, but if you read about secular bears, I'm not talking the ones where they take a year and a half and then within another three years, they've recovered. That corrects nothing. You know, it doesn't. All that does is reinforce the investor's predisposition to believe that you can simply never lose money investing. You can at times pause and at times go down for a little while, but ask someone who owned the Nikkei in 1990 how they're doing. Ask someone who owned the Nifty 50 in 1967 how they did to 1981. Answer inflation adjusted. They lost 75% over 14 years. That's a third of your investing life. You're not going to make that up, period. You cannot make that up. And so it turns out that when the PE of the market, I hate PE because it's such a cheesable metric. You know, any good accountant can make the PE look good. Well, let's use PE just as a way to talk. When the PE of the market is six, then half the stocks below that are have a PE of less than six. And what that means is if you buy a stock now you think is cheap at 12, you could end up losing 60% without the company actually losing any of its efficacy, its veracity, its ability to make money. You, you'll, you'll be down. And Hussman does a good job at that. He does do a good job at making his people money, but he does a great job of showing that all 10 deciles get whooshed out when the secular bear finally exacts its revenge. Now he's going to be a 25-year bear. I'm the most bearish guy on Twitter. And you're not anonymous, which is pretty amazing that you're bearish. And uh, I, I got to tell you, Fintwood drives me crazy with just the amount of people that are in quotes bearish and you don't, they get these huge followings. It's not their real names. You know what the fuck they're doing as far as their actual trades, right? And it's all just hindsight nonsense, right? I, I would agree with you. I don't know about the yeah, kind of 25 year, but I mean, I've, I've been public by, myself saying, I think we're still in a bear market. A lot of that has to do with the writing of last year, at least in my mind, in terms of fixing the drawdown of treasuries against equities, meaning if we're not out of the equity drawdown, then treasuries still have a chance to look like the better place you have been throughout this whole period. Kind of the flight to safety type of dynamic. Well, I um, think beginning, I think we're still in a bear much the way 1930 was still in a bear. I don't think we're in 1932. And so if you... If, I've got two plots that I keep track of. One is the inflation-adjusted S&P back to the turn of the century. And there's at least four events that are like this. That is, if you own the market in 1906 and you look at just the capital gains, inflation-adjusted, and you ask not when did it recover from that 1906 top, but when did it last touch that 1906 top, which to me means you treaded water. When, when did you finally stop treading water? And the answer is 1981, 75 years. 
Same, same from 1929, 75 years, but it hits the same. It comes back and touches the 79 high, the 29 high again in 1981. And so people don't understand this. Take Ron Grice's chart that shows the S&P and not adjusted for traditional inflation, but adjusted for money supply, M2. Now, is M2 the right M? I don't know, but it's not a bad one. The market is flatter than pancake for 100 years. It's all money supply. So we're basically reaping inflationary gains, which means they're not gains, which means you better be making some money off that, off that financial concern that's supposed to be kicking revenue like a gas station. And so I just think it's going to be very ugly. And I think it's going to happen right when the boomers think they have enough money. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. They don't. So the problem is you say that stuff and it's logical and people say, well, you're just a perma bear. You've always been like that. Yeah, you don't, they make assumptions. <laughs> my point. I, I was a raging bull until mid-98, which told you it was a market top. I mean, I was stupid bull. And I was, no one's going to believe this. I was 150% exposed to the market. People who know me go, no, Dave never leopard. I go, yes, I did. That's how stupid I was. And then in 90, mid-98, I said something's wrong. I had read enough books and read enough articles, and I emptied half my equities. And right as we started the trek down to the Asian crisis, when it got down there, I said, if it comes back, I'm getting rid of the rest because something's wrong here. And it came back, and by mid-99, I was out of equities. And the only exposure I took after that was energy. Starting around 2001, I took a big energy position and did well. So my best decade... Compared to the pros was the knots from 2000 to 2009. While they were getting their ass kicked by two bear markets, I competed 13%. And that, you do that for one decade, <laughs> you'll be okay. Yeah, and it was, I would argue, a more even market than what we've had the last decade, right? I mean, the reality is it's been a story of just fangs, you know, concentration risk, large cap tech. Most of the world has not participated. So it's been a very, and that, Spread the differential is getting even wider. Yeah, I put out oh, it's getting insane. And it's then, like greater principle within the greater principle, right? There's also credit spreads that are getting insane now. So, so it, the clock is ticking. Whether it plays out according to my plan, I don't think you rip the heart out of investors with one fell swoop of a machete. I think it gets carved out one little slice at a time. If you want to look at, if you want to know how overvalued we are, or you get some new metric that says, here's a new metric for valuation. I'll tell you, the year 1994 is when the markets, in my opinion, left orbit. 1994 is the year. I attributed it to bailing up the bond market and then somehow the Fed just never looked back. Michael Green, who's smarter than me and whose model about flows makes total sense and nauseates me at the same time. So I, I have to give full credit for getting it right. I do believe it's some, and I think Michael's getting nervous. Now. I think Michael's getting nervous that the flows are going to stop. But he said that's when the indexing really got going. And so that's when the dumb money appeared. 
in, in starting in 94. But if you look at any metric, you say, how are we doing today relative to the historic mean? Just look at the price of the market. Look at the valuation of the market in 1994 and look at whatever metric you're using now and say, that's how much we're overvalued. All right. So, so what are you doing? So okay, you have this thesis and obviously a prolonged bear market will have plenty of rip your face off rallies before lower lows, rip your face off rallies, lower lows. But the back to path matters more than the prediction. So for you yourself, under that framework, one, do you believe that means you have to trade more often because it means you're not going to have a secular trend? I can't do it, though. Can't uh, do it. It's hard. Yeah, and then, but that will be the implication, right? Because if you're going to be buying hold, you know, you still have to kind of rebalance in an environment where there's going to be some big swings. Well, so I find now I'm getting, you know, 5% on cash equivalent. And I personally don't believe that's tracking inflation, not my inflation. And a lot of people don't realize that, Everyone has their own inflation. So if I'm somehow exposed to a rent, my inflation is different than if I'm not. And so my inflation is largely just expenses of fixing things in the house and buying food and stuff like that and paying for utilities and whatever. My inflation seems higher than 5%. Is it 13 or 14? Probably not. But if you, if I found out it was, that wouldn't shock me. So 5% right now at least gives me a little breathing room to be patient when it returned nothing. It, it was a problem, but the inflation was said to be low. So I still had a little breathing room. So I wasn't missing fixed income opportunity either. I, I These guys just say, go long, long, that's trading. The question I like to hear, I'll ask you, Michael, if I told you, look, you got to buy, let's say you're 30 years old and you got to buy a 30-year treasury. And here's the rule. You got to buy it. You got to hold it. You can't hedge it. You're buying it for a revenue stream. You don't know the future. You don't know inflation. You don't know anything, but you can't sell it. This is lockbox annuity for you. What interest rate would you demand for a treasury? You're going to get your money back. You're going to get the interest. Everything's safe, but you don't know the future. What would you demand? Yeah, I mean, it, it's got to be something that's uncertain in terms of what the yield should be relative to inflation. I mean, this right. You don't know. It's hard. There's no way to know, right? So it's well, like, like more of a disinflation. It's, I would probably still do it paired against other things like a risk parity type approach, right? But your fundamental question is right. It's like, who the hell knows if we're going to go the route of hyperinflation? So this is being auctioned off. And there's a guy at the front of the room, an auctioneer saying, do I hear this? Do I hear this? What interest rate would you say sold? I'll take it. It's a good question. I mean, I, I, I'm putting you out of the spot. Yeah, I, I, honestly, probably you know, somewhere between 8 and 10%. Right. I might go higher, but 8 and 10% would, I wouldn't go lower than 8. And, you know, you could end up being a complete idiot buying a 10 for all we know. So you have to factor in the unknown, the risk, all the ways that you can get humped by that deal. And there's even risk of default, right? 30 years is a long time. And so so you factor it all in and you don't get 4%. And that means, therefore, the treasury market is not priced correctly because it's now a trading vehicle and it's supported by statutory rules that say you have to buy them if you're an insurance company or if you're, or if you're a regional bank. So. That that's the problem we face. The assets are not being priced correct at all. Yeah. I mean, if you were to mark to market most things last year, you would have probably seen it's worse than 08. I, I've been that point many times before. The magic of not being marked to market is that you continue to lie longer, right? In terms of uh, leverage against assets. I am okay, so aside from the five percent that you know, on a real after completion just basis, you're losing money on as you alluded to. What else are you doing? Gold, you're doing, you know, other mixture asset classes, something that's more unique in the street? I've owned a ton of gold. Since 99. So I, I went aggressively long, got a hunch, buy a bunch attitude. And I went pre-long gold and I was buying it steadily up to around 500 bucks an ounce 
and loved the trip to 1900. Didn't like the trip back down again. Bought some more at 1200. Probably, we give it to you in annual salaries. Probably about like six or seven annual salaries in gold. I like units of annual salary because that's the unit you ought to be using when you decide to retire. How many annual salaries do you have? Then you should probably assume you're going to spend one per year. <laughs> and if we're not going to make any money, then you better have 25 when you retire. I have, and of course, I have silver and platinum, a tiny amount, fortunately, because it's done nothing. I bought platinum miners, not a lot. I'm, I don't like going in bold. I don't want to be Stan Druckenmiller 2.0 and, you know, losing a billion. But the platinum miners are PEs of five, net cash in the balance sheet, dividend yields of eight. And I'm going to meet up with the largest holder, private holder of SBSW this summer. And he's very helpful because when you're the largest private owner, you pay attention to the details. And I bought, I, in 2020, I may have bought the bottom, at least a short-term bottom. Again, my model is it could there could be a new bottom in our future, even for cheap stuff. But I bought the bottom in energy, not big enough, but pretty big in 2020. And that was triggered by two events. Exxon getting booted from the Dow. I sat back and said, holy shit, you just replaced Exxon with, with Salesforce.com. There, there's a smart move. There's a genius move by the Dow guys. And then Jesse Felder pointed out. So I was in energy from 2001 to 2013 or 15, I think. I can't remember. So I caught some of the downside. Cornell actually booted me out of the funds, which saved me some money. And then I got back in 2020. And Jesse said that energy was 16% of the S&P in 2016. And now at in 2020, it dropped to 2%. I said, that's another top call. That's another bottom call. That's a buy. I want to own energy because I want to own the thing that fuels the entire system, period. I bought a bunch of Rio Tinto. So I don't know how to analyze stocks. I'm not good at this. I'm not an accountant. I don't know how to read a balance sheet, but I looked at Rio Tinto and I see you know, that their mining operations are so distributed that it would take an asteroid to take them out. And at some level, it's potentially even a play on the ESG crap, which I really detest. Good dividend. So it has all the metrics of a of an ongoing concern that turns the money crank slowly, but surely year after year. So that's it. And a few other silly things, but I'm, my equity exposure is still pretty low. Those that you, uh, and you have fun with all of your investing and trading, regardless of equity exposure being low. You know, it's, you know, it's funny. I, a lot of people find you, I wouldn't say controversial, but you know, there are things which we know, or you say and I say too, that are controversial, but you always strike me as a very, you know, I don't know, but you always strike me as a very reasonable, logical person in the way that you frame the world. Right. So I appreciate that from a personal. Well, when you scrubbed your account down and then put me back on, I took that as quite an honor because you said, look, I'm not going after losers this time. And you didn't quite say it that way. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's, yeah, that, that's a side. I mean, I'm doing that because I, trust me, anyone, social media is not healthy, folks. And, that's right. And anyone who anyone who has a big follower knows exactly what just happened. I got Max Kaiser, who's wired very different than me. He did a complete scrub to zero. I said, okay, well, I got knocked out of that one, apparently. And, and then I reappeared and I go, holy shit. So I asked him, I said, what just happened? He said, I just had to scrub the barnacles off. And yeah, totally. what it is, they're human beings and they want to talk. I totally get that. But you reach a point where it just swallows. Yeah. yeah it becomes a full-time job. And I have an actual full-time job just like you do, which we both have to get back right. to. So it's a good way to wrap this random live market conversation. I'm trying to do these every now and then with kind of like a surprise and delight. 
dynamic when it comes to social media. So if you haven't watched this, make sure you follow it and uh, you might see another surprise market chat later today. Negative. You're welcome. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.